This All American Ruins audio adventure is brought to you by the Good Work Institute, inspiring and amplifying the collective power of people committed to just transition. Basically, just transition is a national framework for advancing systems change at every level. Good Work Institute focuses on supporting and cultivating good work. That is, supporting people and initiatives that are building regenerative economies and thriving communities while rejecting systems of oppression and extraction. Good work can take many forms volunteer work, in your business or job, in your family, in your community, or for me, in this podcast, where we talk a lot about the nuanced and layered topics of American society and culture through the lens of the physical and metaphorical ruins of America. Good Work Institute is based in Kingston, New York, and works with people and initiatives throughout the colonized Mohicantuck land, or the Hudson Valley. To learn more about the people at GWI and their programming, visit goodworkinstitute.org. Hi, my name is Blake, and I have just a quick note before we get started. Actually, it's more like a recommendation because this podcast is an immersive audio fantasy, and what you're about to hear is best experienced with headphones on, imagination on, and everything else turned off. Welcome to Abandoned, the All-American Ruins podcast. A few years ago, I read an article about a Denver motel with a dirty little secret. The owner, Gerald Foos, had jimmy-rigged the place so that he could spy on his guests from above. And documented years of folks checking in and out of the Rocky Mountain accommodation. When I say from above, I mean literally. Foos carved passageways in the ceiling over every single room in the motel, installing see-through grates through which he could play the part of voyeur to unsuspecting guests. An Aurora motel owner watched his guests in some of the most intimate moments without them even knowing this. Now, this wasn't just once. It went on for decades, and it's all detailed in the New Yorker magazine. He considered them research subjects and took his work very seriously, spending hours eavesdropping on private moments, keeping extensive notes of his invasive observations. Now, in addition to all the sex that Gerald Foos claims he watched happen here, he said he saw a murder, but never told police. Foos claims that he took no sexual pleasure from it. He was merely an unofficial anthropologist, collecting information on the intricacies of human behavior in fly-on-the-wall moments. Or, to quote Stella, played by Thelma Ritter in Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window, Window shopper. 
I think we can distill the human experience down into two buckets, public moments and private moments. We abide by certain rules of engagement in public. The question, how do I look, depends on good grooming habits. We approve of or admonish certain behaviors and beliefs. Health. These varying standards become unspoken human law. Posture. The font of public-facing human behavior. Cleanliness. But and neatness. Behind closed doors, we transform into our most authentic selves. Plus a daily routine of little finishing touches. Take last night, for example. Behind the curtain, we let our hair down. When I'm home alone, I might take off my shirt and dance around to Lady Gaga, but in public, I wouldn't dare. This is kind of like the deeply personal moment that Gerald Foos documented, only maybe a little more explicit. I often think about him, and I wonder how I might feel if I discovered someone had been taking stock of my private life. But more importantly, how am I that different from Gerald Foos? Granted, I'm not spying on people in their motel rooms, but I'm as nosy as the next person. I love to eavesdrop. In that way, could Gerald Foos and I be more alike than I'm willing to believe? If his intentions were as innocent as he claims, as years of written, objective documentation proves, despite the obvious egregious breach of privacy, aren't we kinda similar? After all, he's no Norman Bates, the anti-hero of Alfred Hitchcock's 1960 sensation Psycho. Good afternoon. Here we have a quiet little motel. Foos didn't cut peepholes into the walls of his motel with the intention of secretly gawking at countless victims for psychosexual satisfaction. It has now become known as the scene of the crime. There is a strange innocence to Foo's behavior, in my opinion, to contrast Bates's insidiousness lurking about his motel, the notorious Bates Motel. Norman Bates, a loner with an abusive mother and a dirty little secret that I actually can't share because I don't know if you've seen Psycho, and I can't spoil the ending because Hitchcock would have my head if I did. We won't allow you to cheat yourself. Now, if we're comparing the two... You must see Psycho from the beginning to end to enjoy it fully. Norman Bates, the murderous psycho... Therefore, do not expect to be admitted into the theater after the start of each performance of the picture. And Gerald Foos, the peeping Tom... We say no one. Well, they're in two different categories. And we mean no one. Bates is clearly evil. Not even the manager's brother. And Foos... The president of the United States... Well... Or the Queen of England. I find him to be questionably... God bless her. Innocent. I insist that you do not tell your friends the little, uh, tiny, horrifying secrets of Psycho after you see it. After you see it.
I pull up to the abandoned Sawyer Kill Motel. Easy to miss if you drive up the New York State Thruway. What I don't anticipate as I step out of the car into the chilly December sun is that, in a moment, I will become a peeping Tom myself, discovering secrets of the ghosts who used to frequent, or still haunt, this property. When I say ghosts, I'm not necessarily talking about spooky floating balls of light. What I mean is the five-dimensional story that my mind assembles when passing the threshold into any of these spaces of dilapidation and decay, especially a location with relics, tchotchkes from lives once lived behind closed doors, now buried underneath caved-in ceilings and crumbling floors. I believe that when these kinds of objects are picked up by the same people over years and years, a kind of energy passes into them. Electrons jumping from one form of matter to another. If I scoop up any such historical token and close my eyes, my imagination goes on high alert. A whole life bursts before me like a movie. I can see the shadow of the person who owned this inanimate proof of life. Wherever I am, this tiny piece of evidence substantiates the fact that a human being once lived here. A portal in my neocortex and thalamus opens wide, lit up like a bonfire, and I am connected to something unknowable, ethereal. A rush of faces, voices, experiences, and private moments sails around me, wrapping my body up in stories that, well, inventions of my mind causes a full-body euphoria, from the highest tips of my hairs to the lowest edges of my toes. As you well know if you've been listening to this show, that's why I come to places like the Sawyer Kill Motel in Saugerties, New York. These sacred spaces, wrought with ruin, become wormholes through time, and in that, pathways to a creative spiritual freedom, where my body and heart and spirit feel at ease. I stand on the cracked concrete in front of the motel, an off-white stretch of cabins like any other motor in you've whizzed by on a highway. I am no longer in Saugerties 2020, but Saugerties 1960. Psycho has just been released, and folks across the country are petrified to stop at motels because who wants to end up dead in the shower? I'm checking in at the Sawyer Kill Motel, en route to somewhere up north. I approach a cracked door to the front office and speak with a grungy man inside wearing oversized overalls and a white uh, t-shirt. Do y'all have any he barely looks up from his copy of Dante's Inferno and directs oh, me to cabin number one, which I immediately reject because in Psycho, uh, Marion Crane, played brilliantly by Janet Lee, was murdered in cabin number one. Okay, cabin number ten. So he offers me cabin number 10, which I accept. As I head to drop off my belongings, 
I glance towards the front of the property and see a brick house, one story, standing very still. It looks lived in. I picture that the clerk's mother resides there and decide that I'm going to go say hello after I settle in. My room is as comfortable as can be for a cheap motor motel. I picture the bed in the corner, old box springs, cheap scratchy floral bedding and stained blankets with soft pink shades, discolored from years of use. I sit on the aging bed and run my feet along the stiff carpet. I can feel the concrete underneath. I poke my head into the bathroom as Bernard Herman's shocking score echoes in my head, so I don't stay in there too long. Daylight is dissolving quickly, so I decide to snoop around. And I'm the only guest here. I thought I wasn't. Maybe they moved away the highway, just like Bates says they did in Psycho. We have 12 vacancies. 12 cabins, 12 vacancies. They, uh, they moved away the highway. Actually, to break out of the fantasy for just a second, this is kind of true for the Sawyer Kill Motel. The throughway will be the heart of our transportation system. The New York State Thruway was officially completed in 1955, which caused major disruptions to old highways up and down the state, and many of the businesses on them suffered. It'll be people traveling by car for business and personal reasons. Though the Sawyer Kill opened in 1970, it certainly felt the economic aftershocks that the New York State Thruway caused hundreds of mom-and-pop motels. It was eventually abandoned in 2017. I head to the back of the motel. I hear cars on the throughway, which runs directly behind the motel parallel to the King's Highway in the front. My imagination breaks as I turn the corner and see a decaying satellite dish, covered in dead vines, likely installed in the 90s to accommodate HBO. You ever notice how motel marquees always seem to advertise free HBO? This is the Home Box Office Television Network. As I come around to the back of the building, my 1960 dreamscape returns as my eyes dart back and forth at the motor vehicles whizzing by up and down the thruway. I push my way through brush and peer through an open door, up a flight of stairs to the second floor. I feel like Lila Crane, Marion's sister, played by Vera Miles, making my way into places where secrets are kept. Yes, miss? Searching desperately for my sister Marion, who's gone missing. I'm Marion's sister. Sure, Lila. Is Marion here? Your girlfriend stole $40,000. What are you talking about? She was supposed to bank it on Friday for her boss. She didn't. No one has seen her since. Someone has seen her. Someone always sees a girl with $40,000. At the top of the stairs, I step into an apartment. There's a kitchen, a bathroom, a living room. I look up and see an old ceiling fan and imagine the whirring, that purring rotation synonymous with a hot summer day. 
I head back downstairs and head around to the front of the motel, and before I turn the corner, I look up and see the crumbling Sawyer Kill Motel sign, part of which has been looted. What's left reads, Sawyer... Tell. I realize whoever stole part of it now possesses a sign that says, Kill Ho. And I think that's funny. At the front of the building, I eye two twin pine trees standing on either side of the office door. They're majestic, growing out of the black concrete. I wonder how many years of guests they've seen coming in and out of these rooms. Like Foo's, they observe from above. A slight breeze rushes by, and I close my eyes, and that's when I hear the trees whisper from above. The house. I shoot a hard look at the one-story home at the front of the property, and goosebumps rise on my skin. This psycho-fantasy has become alarmingly real. Is that the caretaker's home? What horrific secrets are in there? I approach cautiously, looking over my shoulder to make sure the man in the office doesn't see me. He's gone. I quickly round the corner to the front of the house. Tall weeds, dead and mangled, block the stairway, but I push past them to the entrance, and the bottom of my fantasy fully drops out. Something as sinister as the mystery of Alfred Hitchcock's psycho sits slapped on the door. A sticker. It reads, Stop Illegal Immigration. How important is the wall... My hands go numb, and my blood begins to boil. I realize that this house, in actuality, was once occupied by xenophobes. Great. I go inside, and unlike the Sawyer Kill, which is almost completely empty, it looks like this house was abandoned without warning. Either an eviction or a rapture. Everything is here. Kitchen appliances, baseball cards, photos, pipes, books, inhalers, more books, furniture, clocks on the wall, pay stubs, a spirit rock that says yes you can, beds with sheets on them, a child's playroom with purple walls, stuffed animals, cat food, birthday cards, delinquent child support notices, a life. A full life. I google the man's name on one of the pay stubs. Results populate, showing multiple arrest warrants. DUIs, failure to appear in court, assault, battery, possession. A child's voice floats out of my imagination and down the hallway, humming the chorus to Sweet Child of Mine. I smell thick cigarette smoke and hear the TV playing reruns of Wheel of Fortune. I can taste ramen noodles and SpaghettiOs straight out of the can, and an unexpected wave of compassion washes over me. I can't ever imagine feeling the need to put up a stop illegal immigration sticker, 
but I also can't fathom being so down and out and desperate for any sense of security or belonging. I know what it's like to feel less than. I know the feeling of being othered. Based on the things I find in the house, whoever lived here likely had little income, mounting debt, addiction problems, and a criminal record. He's obviously been tricked into thinking that, although he's unable to scrape by, at least he's not an immigrant. But I imagine realistically he couldn't find work or keep it, afford child support, recover from addiction, or ever get ahead in life by taking personal responsibility for his own mess because that's how the system was designed. An intricate blueprint that ensures a few folks stay on the top and the rest of us try and scramble up the ladder, fighting amongst ourselves to feel some semblance of power, safety, control. We go to war over the color of our skin, spiritual practices, gender, sexuality, nationality, heritage, economic status. We segregate ourselves, dispelling the power of unity by trying to topple one another, all out of the fear thrust onto us. The rotting house and adjacent motel are symbols of that great American lie. If you work hard enough, it pays off. But when the federal government lists the poverty level guideline as a yearly gross annual income of $12,880, something is wrong. That's not poverty, that's Dickensian. Barbaric. $22,880 a year, $32,880 a year. Who the fuck can survive on that? When you account for the outrageous rising inflation rates, soaring housing prices, skyrocketing drug costs, which incidentally are outpacing inflation, mounting insurance premiums, and don't even get me started on student loan debt, the mere monthly costs of being able to afford nutritious food, gas, and clothes? Y'all, it just doesn't add up. And what's more, the U.S. hasn't adjusted the variables to define poverty since LBJ took office in 1963. Are we all cool with that? I pick up another pay stub. It's dated November 2016. The year-to-date income is $14,848.50, so whoever this man was didn't meet the national poverty standard, particularly if he had a second, third, fourth, or fifth job. I call absolute bullshit. I exit the house, still very angry at the xenophobe, but observing these living conditions makes it clear why someone might revert to that level of ignorance. It doesn't make it right, but it clears the floor for clarity, at least for me. I walk back to the driveway that leads up to the front of the Sawyer Kill Motel. This didn't turn out like the psycho fantasy I was expecting. This has become a brutal reminder of where we are why it's critical to listen and hear one another, why the fight for, not with, 
humanity is never over. I imagine Gerald Fu is watching me from above, documenting my private and public behavior, my tears, my confusion, my rage. He feels sad, too. I spot Norman Bates in the upstairs window and try to smile. Though he's fictional, to me, he's a symbol of a ruthlessly common traumatic childhood drenched in society's lack of empathy or awareness of a mounting mental health crisis, especially back in 1960. Yeah, he was bound to become a monster. I get into the car and leave the Sawyer Kill Motel as the December sun settles behind the Catskill Mountains on the opposite side of the New York State Thruway. The two men watch me drive off, slowly fading into the dusk, along with the other ghosts that wander the property. I drive by months later and see a for sale sign shoved carelessly into the dirt at the front of the property, easy to miss if you're not looking for it. I slow my car and look for foos and baits, and nothing. The house has been emptied. Through the chorus of cicadas, I hear a train in the distance. I pull my car to the front of the motel and walk around the back. It's surrounded by tall weeds on all sides like castle walls. The stalks grow so high that I can't see the New York State Thruway. But I can hear it as it thunders past me, headed north to somewhere. If you're just tuning in for the first time, then welcome to the first season of Abandoned, the All-American Ruins podcast. Join me every other week as I take you on an immersive sonic journey, recounting my expeditions of abandoned spaces across the United States, which I transform into fantastical audio experiences that allow you, dear listener, to dive into my imagination with me, or maybe inspire you to go out and use your own. Next time, you and I are headed to Letchworth Village, an abandoned psychiatric facility in upstate New York, where we'll meet a king. If you don't want to miss it, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could do me a solid and please rate and review this first season so I can keep feeling the fantasy with you. You could also share it with someone you might suspect needs a break from reality and in desperate need of an off-the-beaten-path kind of vacation. And if you like to read or enjoy amateur photography, you can also catch up on more of my adventures at allamericanruins.com or follow me on Instagram at allamericanruins. Abandoned, the All American Ruins podcast is hosted, written, edited, and produced by me, Blake File, with studio space courtesy of Radio Kingston, WKNY, AM 1490, FM 1079 in Kingston, New York. Big special thanks to Ida Hakala, Jimmy Buff, and Manuel Bloss for the mentorship and encouragement, and to you, sweet listener, for taking the time to explore these abandoned spaces with me. 
Oh, and Alfred Hitchcock. Even though I learned years later that you were kind of a dick, holy smokes, bud. Your prolific catalog turned my world upside down. In a good way.